Welcome to Wine, Women, and Writing. I'm Pamela Fagan Hutchins, and this is a show where writers talk about their real, authentic, complex female characters and the real life inspiration stories they're based on, all of which translates them, in my opinion, into great reads. Um, we do it with a little bit of oversharing, sometimes deep dives into profanity, irreverence, and other things that keeps us um, off of FCC-regulated airwaves, and uh, with vast quantities of coffee, wine, or whatever gets us through the day. If you're listening to this via podcast, you're missing out because you're missing the ever-changing backdrop of the live video shows. Today, I'm coming to you from Nowheresville, Texas. And I am ecstatic because I just finished this awesome book and I have the author on the show with me today. It's Christina McMorris. The book is sold on a Monday and welcome to Wine Woman and Writing, Christina. Thank you so much. I love being here with you and your house looks beautiful. The artwork back there, I'm just admiring. I've got to give a plug to the artist. She's a cozy mystery writer named Candy Fight. Um, actually, Cat Clayton is her pen name. I just outed her. <laughs> but thank you very much. Um, I have been talking to you on and off for the last couple of, of months, I guess, ever since you booked the show. And you, I understand, just got back from a whirlwind book tour. I'm in the middle of a whirlwind book tour, so you're right in that I got to come home for about two days and then I jetted off again. So I came from San Francisco, got to sleep in my own bed and see my babies for two days and then jetted off and I'm now in San Diego actually and uh, did an event at Huntington Beach yesterday in San Diego downtown tomorrow and then I'm home for a day and then off to New York and back to the south for two weeks. So it kind of stays like this until Christmas. What a great problem to have, though. Are you having a good time? I, I am, yes. And thank goodness for FaceTime. So I can see my family all the time, it's, which is really, really nice. And you know, the ages are 12 and 15 going on 40. So they're at a really good age. So this is the first time that I felt like I could do something like this. So it's been ex so exciting, especially to meet people, you know, people like you that, that I, people I've been in touch with for quite some time in years, readers or bloggers, reviewers online on social media for years and now coming to the events and we actually get to hug in person, which is so fun. I can totally relate to that. And my memory of book tours also involves a lot of humiliation and craziness. So I hope yours has not had that. I haven't had the humiliation yet, but I am a mother of two kids. So it probably takes quite a bit <laughs> to, to push me over the edge. <laughs> we'll chat and share stories later. Um, I, I told you a few days ago that I almost didn't finish your book because I was so into it that I was reading it in the bathtub and, and dropped it. So I'm really excited to hear your summary of it in case I miss anything and the pages sticking together. So tell us all about this um, beautiful, poignant, sold on a Monday. So aside from it became like the Titanic for you at the end of the story, <laughs> nobody drowned, <laughs> it was all good. Um, so yeah, the, the quick summary of the book, of course, as you know from reading um, in the bathtub, is that a reporter during the Great Depression named Ellis Reed, he happens to cross two kids on a farmhouse porch in the middle of rural Pennsylvania, and they have a sign next to them that reads, Two Children for Sale. He takes a photo of it just because he's so taken aback by it, not meant for publication, but it actually leads to his big break. And because of some manipulations on his side that seem harmless at the time, it actually catapults his career 
and has devastated consequences for everybody involved in the photo. So he's gonna have to try to make those right before it's too late. This, um, this book touches on so many levels, uh, issues of the heart to me. And I, I know that this is about missing children and set, you know, and prohibition and, and when times were tough, but in many ways to me, it was a very complex love story um, uh, between, you know, Ellis and someone else I won't mention yet between moms and kids, kids and moms. Um, what, what about being a mother um, drew you to this story? Yeah, well, as a mom, what happened was I was online and I was researching for another book for The Edge of Loss, which was my Alcatraz story with kids grew up on Alcatraz with as family, the prison staff, which shocked me as well. Uh, so you talk about true stories of inspirations of you know families and whatnot that that definitely drew me to that. And so I was still in that mode, I think, of sort of children and parents. And and I happened across a link online. And as you well know, as a writer yourself, there is no clickbait that is more tempting than something that reads 50 of the most shocking historical photos you have never seen. Which 50 photos have I never seen? So I click on it, of course, as we all do, and went down the rabbit hole and found a photo. And if you haven't seen it yet, for people that are watching this, they can go on my website and the photo is on there that inspired the book. And that is four children that are sitting on a stoop in Chicago in 1948. It actually looks like the Great Depression in the photo, which also surprised me. So there's a mother turned away from the camera and there's a sign that reads, four children for sale, inquire within. And as a mother myself, I had a visceral reaction to that. And I thought I could understand a parent possibly giving up their child for their betterment because you thought that they would have a better life without you. But what would push a parent to actually ask for money in return? And that question haunted me. And then, like you said, it ended up leading to this story that got so much bigger than that as far as the relationships go and the complexity of that, uh, relationships of different forms of love. So in so, in, as you mentioned, so many forms of that are throughout the story, whether it's parental um, from the child to the parent or parent to the child, uh, romantic love, but all these different forms of love that you have that you would possibly sacrifice anything for. Um, but you can also screw up sometimes because of desperation and ambition at times. The only time I thought about selling my children actually was when they're teenagers. So I don't know, you know, what would actually drive me to it if I made it through that. But I totally related to what you're saying when you read when I was reading the book that, you know, as a mom, you sit there and you think, how could you ever? But then you start reading the story and you get inside the shoes of, of you know, this character that has her children for sale. And you start to think there are levels of desperation that might make you want the best for them. But what would actually make you sell them? So it was really gripping. Thank you very much. And I think that's, you know, the, the danger in that we today, especially with social media all for all the good that it brings uh, but with uh, snippets of news and just basing our opinions on a photograph or a headline alone and uh, soundbite news and not delving deeper into what really is happening and making judgments on people without really knowing the full context and it is so easy for everyone including ourselves if we took little snapshots of our lives or things that we have said on text even in jest and blasted it out publicly we could look like 
terrible human beings, all of us. And yet, if you understand why we do the things that we do or in context, it completely changes everything. And when I went out with a writer group for breakfast one morning, when that, that photo and that what if question kept haunting me, I ended up asking the writers that, excuse me, a dry cough from all the airplanes. Um, and I asked them, I just don't understand why a parent would ask for money in return. And all the writers agreed, nodding, nodding, yes, we all don't understand. And one author friend who was very smart and looked at me very simply and profoundly and said, Christina, because they wanted to eat. And you think, who am I to judge? If you have other children and you want them fed, you have no idea what their circumstances are. And so when I did uncover the true story of what happened to that family and those kids in the picture, uh, both in reading follow-up articles on them that came out five years ago that you people can Google, uh, but also I've been in touch with two of them that are still alive today and become friends with specifically one of them named Rayanne, a little girl in the photo, who was in fact sold for $2 by her mother. She claims it was for bingo money and that she, her mother had a boyfriend at the time, the father was out of the picture and he did not want her children. So it is not the compassionate story that I thought that I was hoping for. Doesn't mean that those stories did not happen. And so, uh, but when I uncovered that and found out that she was sold for $2 to a farmer and his wife for farm labor, and they took her younger brother who was crying and didn't want to be separated from his sister for free. I thought, my goodness, I almost, I wanted to give these kids in a way, even though my kids in my story and everybody in there is completely fictionalized in my own small writerly way, wanted to give them a better outcome and a better reason that they would be given up in such a way. And Rayanne and I are actually have become, like I said, friends and she got to share the truth of her circumstances and the hardships they went through. And we actually um, get to meet in person next week for doing um, a TV show. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you know, and in some ways, maybe your friendship and compassion does give her the joy of some, you know, some joy coming um, from what were really bad circumstances. So tell me when you're meeting and you're together, what will be the, um, the circumstances for that? Is that going to be televised? Can people catch the interview? Yeah, absolutely. We're so excited. Twofold. One, we get to meet. We have been talking on the phone and on texting for months now. And so we're so excited to actually be in the same room very soon. And of all places, she lives in a small town in Indiana and I'm in Portland, Oregon. So the chances of us getting together was going to be take some quite some time for me to have an event in Indiana coming up in several months. That all got to be pushed forward as far as our uh, finally meeting and that we're going to be on the Megan Kelly Today Show on Wednesday, I believe it's at 9 a.m. Uh, Eastern time. So we get to meet, I think, right before the show or the night before in New York and get to exchange hugs and, and finally be in the same room. And tears and everything else. That is super. Well, everybody should be sure to turn in Wednesday for the Megan Kelly Show and catch that. Um, read the book first or at least get it started if you haven't, because it'll mean even more to you to see that interview if you have some of the fictionalized version of this story um, to go with. Something you said really struck me um, as I was reading and thinking about modern journalism juxtaposed against this historical and fictionalized version of it, it did really hit me that we are quick to make snap judgments about photos and, and, and about, you know, clickbait or whatever and, and to, to judge people. Now, the sad 
fact of your story is the additional layer of that where it actually was um, a bad um, a bad version of it that was the truth but how judgy we actually are and how important it is that we not only um, tell the truth but that we stay open to the truth the responsibility on both sides now you have a background in journalism um if i'm not mistaken or at least a strong interest yeah absolutely so yes and i agree with everything you just said you know it's important to to not just have journalists who are out there getting the truth and people who and other people who care about the truth but also to be that we care about getting the truth and, and know that whenever we hear a story, we're getting a part of it. We don't, we shouldn't really have a strong opinion based on one snippet or, you know, one, one version of a story. Uh, and for me, I did, I grew up in a newsroom, literally uh, starting at nine years old because I started hosting a kid's television show for an ABC affiliate in Portland from nine years old to 15. And my mom thought I was too shy, if you can imagine that. And it's hard to imagine now for most of my friends um, who give me a microphone, I don't wanna let it go. And uh, my mom thought it would be fun just to kind of try out this little modeling acting class that lasted six weeks. And you know, six hours later, you're supposed to be ready for Hollywood. And I went to this audition just for the experience and that was it. And ended up getting the job partly because I fell off my chair during the uh, the audition, it was on rollers, which I didn't expect, and apparently giggled my way through it and got the job. Because of that, we ended up shooting the show every Wednesday night uh, in a very specific window between the end of the six o'clock news and the beginning of the 11 o'clock news. And we had to find out if we needed to reshoot anything before we left that night because it was going to air then a few days later. So I would hang out that night before I had to go home and get ready for school the next morning. And I would sit in the newsroom for hours and hang out with the sportscasters and news anchors and reporters and the weatherman who was my favorite because he always had the corniest, funniest kid jokes and he let me use the special pen which helped me move the clouds around, which I thought was very high tech at the time. <laughs> you were living the dream, Christina. <laughs> Absolutely, for sure. And, I and now your kids are this age. Can you picture them doing something like this? No, I brought them down, my youngest one, 12 year old, down with me to the station, to the same station to do a morning show just a, a month or two ago when the book came out. And I brought him down and I thought, oh my gosh, he's 12 years old. I would have been on the show for three to four years at that point. And I thought that is, it's so crazy because I don't remember being that young doing it. You, we always feel older, of course, when we're that person. And what was fun is I got to show him the studio and also the newsroom. And it reminded me that I had also come back during my college years and done an internship in, in the newsroom uh, for, with a reporter there and, and really got kind of firsthand experience on that side as more closer to being an adult as well. So um, one of the one of the things that grabbed me um, as as a woman, as a, a woman who has worked in um, fields that were dominated by men and who's really interested in fiction with strong women was your portrayal of the um, journey of women in journalism in in the book. Um, and Lily, who we haven't talked about yet, but I guess you're um, other protagonist, if you will, um, in the book and her journey. If you could tell us a little bit, a teaser about that. Yeah. Well, Lily is one of my obviously favorite characters. Is probably yours. Um, she is a, a a woman who has some secrets at the time, so I won't give away too much there, as you know. But she's got some shame and guilt that come along with choices that she has made along her life, and she works at the newspaper along with Ellis. 
but she works as a secretary to the editor-in-chief, which is the best job she could get at the time. Number one, she's happy to have a job during the Great Depression at all, especially as a woman. But to aspire to anything more than being a secretary was pretty much a long shot for her. And yet she wants so much to be a real columnist herself. And so she's seen all these people around her that, you know, all these men who are smoking their cigarettes all day long and turning in their stories for deadlines and sometimes not making the best choices. And yet she's limited because of her gender. And and so she ends up fighting against that and you know figuring out ways that she is not going to give up. Um, but she also has her hand uh, and intentionally in some of the, the things that happen to the family as a fallout of this photo. And so she also feels partially responsible and ends up you know, putting a lot at risk and possibly, without sharing too much, possibly losing things in order to make things right. I think that what made me relate to her so strongly is that shame and guilt seem to be universal women in the workplace feelings you know for whatever our myriad of reasons we can relate to that so i really did relate to lily even though i hadn't walked in all the shoes that she had she was a powerful character to me oh i'm glad you enjoyed her and i think one thing as we talk a lot recently it's really come out even more than ever about even hollywood for example since that's been on such a spotlight you know women actually coming forward and asking for more money being a being we're so i think um accustomed to apologizing all the time and i find myself doing that in emails all the time even still to you know my editor or my agent or what have you saying i'm so sorry to ask for this if it's okay if it's not too much trouble and i think and my husband was a great one that said chris stop saying sorry you know like and you think okay how would most guys, not everybody, how would most guys probably approach this? Would they apologize? Would they just ask for the question? And I realize that that is so, I think, ingrained in us, especially as moms. <laughs> We're probably always apologizing for something. Um, but it, it is, you know, brought more awareness to me. And as I was writing this book, even more so, the fact that she wants something and she asks in the most subtle ways. And yet by the end, you know, you, hopefully she finds a way to ask for, and to say what she wants and fight for it. One of the um, the other things that um, I wanted to bring up about this book is that it was written uh, with a backdrop of not only the Great Depression but prohibition. And um, you know, the, here here was this woman trying to succeed in the workplace, and the guys are going out drinking during lunch, and you know, and and Ellis comes for a while to it as well. And the you know the the double standard that's implicit in how perfect Lily had to be versus the behavior that the men were getting away with. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. You've got you know the two or three martini lunches happening that were very normal and ways to network for the guys and you know drinking after work or drinking in the middle of the day um, and also getting scoops that way, figuring out kind of sneaky ways of getting stories, which I found out as I was reading memoirs that I thought were fascinating. You know, these true stories that you can't make up that of course work their way into the book of these you know, reporters who learned very quickly that to get the scoops, you go and hang out with the firemen in town because number one, they know everything about what happens in their town and they have a lot of free time as they're waiting in between the alarms to sit and do nothing but talk, play cards, smoke and tell stories and gossip. And so they realized that they were really great gossip sources. And any thinking you know, of a woman, of course, at that time, that would not be the appropriate thing for her to go do. But the guys really had a lot more access at that time for things like that. And of course, the um, the stereotype of the women being the ones, the old hens that sat around on the porch and gossiped, the irony there to me is, is rich. 
So how much, given that you write historical fiction and given that you succumb to the, the 50 historical photos you've never seen, et cetera, um, which by the way, I think correlates precisely to how deep you are into a deadline for the book you're working on, how quick you, <laughs> you are to succumb to those headlines. Am I right? Um, but, <laughs> Absolutely true, yes. <laughs> but um, how much of you do you find yourself bringing into books that are set all these years ago? So that's a great question. I mean, I think I would imagine that writers, no matter what genre and setting that you write in, whether it's you know, futuristic or dystopian or what have you, 1800s, in my case, I love the 1920s through the 40s. It is my favorite era to write about. And I think that we absolutely infuse ourselves into different characters and and, uh, and, and the things that we enjoy reading about ourselves, which are the things that we are supposed to write about. So in my books, you know, I love writing about Irish immigrants. I've written about Italian immigrants, Japanese immigrants, you know, Japanese American internment camps, you know, the fact there were non-Japanese spouses who lived in the camps voluntarily. All of those things are, are something that means something very special to me. I lived in uh, Florence very spoiled apparently, looking back during college for one whole year where I got to eat a lot of bread and pasta and wine. Uh, and and all of that ended up being part of me that I got to then share in my stories. And of course, even my grandparents who in, inspired my first book, Letters from Home, with their World War II courtship letters that nobody knew about, uh, that my grandmother finally shared. Even those ended up you know, sparking everything. So for me, it's been a, been a very personal journey all along. Uh, now, now I have to go pick up letters from home. So um, we're nearing the end of our time together, and I want to be sure that people know how to find out more about you, how to engage you with their book club, where you're going to be next. So if you could tell us a little bit about what's coming up um, with you and how to find out about it. Yeah, I would love that. Absolutely. So my website is as everything. <laughs> That's the only thing that keeps me sane that I know where everything is. We know where I'm supposed to be for the most part. Um, so it's christinamcmorris.com. Really easy. Has my event whole schedule on there that goes all the way until June of next year. So I am all over the country. So I hope if somebody, if they're nearby, that they'll come out and see me. It would be very fun to meet. And I also have something really fun on there for book clubs. There's all kinds of recipes, um, themed playlists, Etc. And one thing that's going to last for just a little while longer, if a book club decides to read and discuss sold on a Monday before March 1st, so if they schedule that date ahead of time, then I am sending them with my kids' help because, you know, they owe me as giving birth to them. They have to assemble things for me now. Uh, I'm sending out this party pack that has 1930s candy, which is not from 1930s, so their teeth are okay, and um, wine charms that are all themed with the book and a couple other things because I've learned one thing on all these years of writing is that book clubs are actually wine clubs with books. And so I know that wine goes hand in hand. <laughs> I got an invitation today for a Reading with Rosé book club that's gonna be held at a winery. I'm gonna have to tell them about your deal um, because that is totally up their alley. <laughs> Yeah. Oh gosh, that's perfect. Yes. Yeah, super fun. Yeah. And the charms are like typewriters and cameras and all these little 1940s, 1930s things that were just so fun to find. How that is so awesome. Um, and you mentioned the Megyn Kelly interview where you're going to meet Rayanne in real life. One of the um, people from the picture that originally inspired sold on a Monday, and that'll be this Wednesday, 
um, this coming Wednesday. So that actual date on that, let's see if we can figure that out. It is October 20, October 24th. And the reason I know this for sure is because it's also my 20th anniversary <laughs> with my husband. So he is, this tells you what 20 years of marriage is really about. It's the fact that we're going to be on completely opposite coasts <laughs> on that day. And he is going to be holding down the fort with the kids and supporting me in such a huge way. So he, I actually said, I'm so sorry. It's on that date. He said, oh my gosh. He said, it's one of the best things ever. He said, because it took a village to get there to that point. And it's so exciting to be able to celebrate it. And the very next day I'm flying home and then we're going to go out to dinner and celebrate. He sounds like a keeper. Um, one more important question that I didn't ask you, but it's the, what are you working on and what's coming next? I'm <laughs> sure you have another book probably done. <laughs> Uh, that would be, no, it would be called 30 more stops is what, is what I'm working on next. I'm at about 20 stops right now. I got 30 more to go or so. And, and it's a great question because I should be working on something. I do have another book on contract and I had some ideas, my editor and H and I, we batted around and I'm getting excited about some possibilities. And then when this book uh, launched and there've been so many exciting things happening, that it's a great problem to have that I've had no time to write. And thankfully, uh, my editor said, don't worry, just go out and do your thing and promote and we'll worry about it later. So I'm hoping by January, after the holidays, after all of the food and champagne has settled, that I'll be able to start jumping into something new. I hope you can too, because your books are, are delightful and I have loved getting this chance to chat with you. I hope that um, it, this book just continues to be a phenomenal success and that your meeting with Rayanne is as wonderful as it sounds like it's going to be. Thank you so much. I can't wait. And thank you for having me. It was so fun to talk to you. Well, you're welcome. And thank you to everybody out there, those um, stalwarts that watch the live videos and the rest of you that catch it on the podcast for joining us. And I hope that you'll run out and if you haven't already, pick up a copy of Sold on a Monday and take advantage of the book club offer that Christina McMorris is um, currently having on her website. I would be remiss and um, I would probably also be in a lot of trouble with my producer if I didn't say that this is a copyrighted, copyrighted, copyrighted production of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and solely owned thereby. And we'll be back in two weeks with J.A. Jantz. I hope until then you read a lot of great books. If you want to know more about Christina, she gave you her website. If you want to know more about the show or about mine, my website's also easy, PamelaFaganHutchins.com. And until then, here's two really awesome writing, great books, and even better wine. <laughs>